Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts. You can find our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com, Kristen. <laughs> so my name is Kristen Pugh. I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And today we are joined by Sarah Miller, who is a research associate at the Canadian Climate Institute. Hello, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, how's it going? It is pretty good. We've um, got some rain over here for the first time and... It feels like months and I kind of forgot what it feels like. So it's nice. It's raining so much today that it's it's almost like it's trying to make up for the last six months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't check the forecast today, but yesterday it looked like it was straight rain for the whole week, which is uh, maybe overcompensating. <laughs> <laughs> so just to be clear, Sarah is uh, here on the West Coast with me. Mm -hmm. You're in Victoria and I'm in Vancouver. What a treat for me. We usually are talking to people over in Kristen's time zone, Eastern Canada. So it's a pleasure. It's great to have another West Coaster to talk to. <laughs> Cascadia for the win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, let's get started. So Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about the Canadian Climate Institute and what it does? So the, the Canadian Climate Institute has been around for a few years now, um, since 2019. And we're a, a national organization uh, focused, obviously, on, on climate change research and policy advice. Um, so we do research across sort of three broad themes relating to climate change. So uh, we focus on climate adaptation, which is my area, uh, clean growth, so how to position the economy for success, uh, the Canadian economy for success on the road to, to net zero and to make sure that, you know, we're seeing jobs benefits and economic benefits from reducing climate pollution and mitigation. So how do we actually hit our targets? Um, what's the policy needed? What are the policy pathways? Um, yeah, so we do various types of types of research and, and reports and make uh, policy advice based on based on that research to the different levels of government in Canada. What finally prompted Canada to create a Climate Institute in 2019? It feels really recent. It does. Um, yeah. And I would say there's also the net zero advisory body, which is even more recent, which advises um, the government of Canada on pathways to net zero. You know, I can't speak for, for the federal government's motivation. There, there's a, um, a network of climate councils around the world that are set up similar to us and to the net zero advisory body that are mandated to, to do research and give advice on, on how to tackle climate change. Yeah. I would say it's sort of about time that Canada joined that, that group of countries seeking, seeking evidence-based advice on how to tackle the challenges over the next few years and decades. So I'm glad we exist. It must be like a, a really exciting area to research because there's so much that's happening and changing. So I'm curious about like your own personal journey, how you got involved. Um, I'm relatively new. So I joined earlier this year. Before that, I worked in provincial politics. Um, I worked for the BC Greens for about five years, including through the minority government, which was a really interesting experience. And, you know, climate change just is something that it's always been something I've really cared about. And it feels like it feels like really the space is opening up for for real policy advice that governments have been increasingly kind of looking to move, I would say, with some optimism. And I think we're starting to move from that kind of um, period of setting setting targets 
and making high level commitments to, you know, the rubber actually hitting the road on what actually needs to happen. 2030 obviously isn't that far away. So it feels like a really important time, obviously, and a really interesting time to kind of be more involved in giving more granular advice to governments looking to actually make some changes. That's super cool. Um, And you were saying that your research area is climate adaptation. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what that means and what kind of research you do? And maybe I should caveat some of what I just said about um, (laughs) governments getting uh, more granular on climate change, because on adaptation, I think it's a little bit of a different story still. And we, we could talk about that more. But yeah, climate adaptation essentially means how do we build resilience to the climate impacts that are already here, that are already manifesting, and that we know, regardless of future emissions trajectory, are still going to be baked in, right? So we know that even if we, you know, stopped emitting tomorrow, we're still locked into a certain amount of warming. And there's still going to be impacts on the economy and on people in Canada. We're already seeing increasing extreme weather events. Obviously, Hurricane Fiona is just the latest. The drought in BC over the last number of months is sort of um, a less sort of uh, extreme or kind of, you know, media heavy example, but something that's really severe. Um, So anyway, so adaptation is all about kind of how do we build resilience to the, the impacts that we're already seeing? How do we protect our infrastructure, protect people's safety, um, people's well-being, and, you know, do the most that we can to prepare for for what's ahead alongside doing everything we can to reduce emissions. And you were involved recently with a big set of reports on costing climate change. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the Institute um, has undertaken a multi-year um, modeling exercise and, and set of reports on yeah, exactly that. So the cost of climate change in Canada, trying to shed some light and get some more um, granularity around, you know, how climate change is already affecting Canadians and our economy, and what we can do about it. There's been a few reports. So we looked at infrastructure specifically, so the threats to um, Canadian infrastructure and the costs to infrastructure. Uh, we looked at the health impacts of of climate change, and actually, just today. Um, the chief public health officer, she does an annual report and she released a report looking at the health impacts of climate change and noted that it's uh, the number one health risk to Canadians and to people around the world is climate change. So we did some work looking at, yeah, looking at health costs. Uh, And then also we looked at the North specifically because the impacts on Northern infrastructure are unique and, and more severe than in the rest of the country especially when you look at permafrost thaw. And then most recently, so the report that I've been involved with um, is called Damage Control, and it's about the cost of climate change to Canada's economy as a whole. And we did this report for a number of reasons, but what we aimed to do was to get away from just talking about direct costs. So, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the direct costs of um, damaged infrastructure, for example, and needing to repair or replace that infrastructure but there's been less emphasis to date on the macroeconomic costs. So how the costs of climate change filter through the entire economy, looking at things like labor productivity, jobs, economic growth. Um, so we wanted to look at that specifically. Yeah, so many interesting things to pick up on. And I want to sort of go through those themes. Um, but before we do that, I'm just curious if you could if you could talk more broadly about like when you're doing a study that's looking at the cost of climate change. 
how does that even work? <laughs> that was my question. It sounds too big to measure. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, in many ways. And I would say uh, people who actually do the modeling are there's there's definitely um, something very impressive about that whole side of side of the equation. So, I mean, I could talk about the latest report specifically. There's various ways to go about it. What we did is we looked at both sort of the more granular impact areas. So we pulled out specific areas um, where previous research and other experts have pointed to the likelihood of significant costs. So we looked at, for example, infrastructure as an area. We looked at extreme weather events, some of the health impacts. So we've chose 16 different impact areas and looked at the cost of climate change to those specifically and at a quite a granular level across the country and over um, individual, not only years, but some in some cases, months and even days, how those could manifest. And then we also fed that input um, or that those outputs into a macroeconomic model that basically simulates the economy and how it functions using 2015 as a base year. So what that does is it simulates how the economy functions and spits out outputs that look at labor productivity, the rate of growth, jobs impacts, that kind of thing. So we're able to see both sort of a bottom-up perspective on how climate change will impact our economy as well as a more top-down perspective on the macro costs that filter through the economy as a whole. Also important to note that... uh, It's still the tip of the iceberg. So we use the tip of the iceberg metaphor in the report to really drive home the fact that what we're able to quantify and monetize in terms of climate impacts are just the tip of the iceberg, just above the waterline, what we have a fair degree of certainty about and what we're able to model with the tools that we have today. We know that there's a lot more that lies below the waterline in terms of risks, um, especially in higher emissions scenarios that we can't quantify at this stage. So we didn't include. Um, So I would say that uh, it's safe to look at our results as sort of the lower bound of what's likely to happen rather than a comprehensive accounting of all the costs we're likely to see. At a minimum, these are going to be the costs of climate change, but they're probably going to be much more extensive. That makes sense. So why do you think, um, why is costing something that's really important to do when we're looking at climate change? Hmm, there's a few different answers I could give to that question. I would say for for one, it's how, you know, governments think about priorities in many cases, right? Like people care about the health of the economy for good reason and governments care about the health of the economy. Wouldn't say, you know, above all else, but it's top of mind for for policymakers, obviously, right? It's what creates people's financial security and well-being and ensures that we're able to provide all the services that are so important. So I would say if if people who care about climate change aren't talking about it in terms of cost to people and cost to the economy um, and opportunities on the flip side, you know, like what we can do to reduce some of those costs and to seize some of those opportunities, which we could talk about more. But I think if you're not talking about that, then you're not speaking to something that is top of mind for people and for governments, Right. They're not going to act just because it's the right thing to do. They need to understand the uh, what the stakes are in terms of what it means for our economy. So at a high level, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind in terms of why it's important. Speaking the language of, of policymakers and, and people who think about this on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I, maybe I would also add kind of 
avoiding the the trap that you know thinking about the environment or thinking about climate change is like a niche issue off to the side that you get to if you can right that as long as you you make sure the economy is taken care of uh, and all the important stuff and then if you can it would be a nice to have to also consider environmental impacts or to consider climate this research and the research that other people have done corrects that sort of mistaken notion and makes it clear that if you care about the economy, you have to care about climate change. So it puts it, you know, where it should be at the center. Um, so let's uh, let's maybe start by talking about infrastructure. What are some of the the ways in which climate change imposes costs for infrastructure? So we do a deeper dive in the infrastructure report that we released a couple of years ago, where we look in, in much more detail than than damage control does in terms of the costs to infrastructure. But essentially, it's a story of prematurely damaged and destroyed infrastructure. So, you know, roads, buildings, people's homes. In the north, there's particular impacts from permafrost thaw on roads and also on airports, um, which are really damaging um, for infrastructure and hard to respond to after the fact. So, so yeah, it's essentially, you know, our, our, our infrastructure was not built for the climate conditions that we're already seeing, let alone those that we can expect over the coming decades. Um, so if we don't put in place um, some adaptation measures, essentially, you know, when you're talking about roads, it's things like um, when they come up for repair and replacement cycles, uh, using more temperature resistant asphalt, it can be things as simple as that to reduce some of these costs. Uh, but if you're not doing that, then you can expect, you know, more buckling and breakage, um, and the need to to replace and repair um, this infrastructure much earlier than would otherwise be required, which obviously is extremely costly. And yeah, and, and that comes from a variety of things. I mean, increasing freeze-thaw events, extreme weather, so obviously flooding, um, extreme heat sort of runs the gamut of, of climate impacts. And, you know, looking at something particularly acute, so looking at Fiona, or looking at the flooding in BC from last year, you know, that really drives home how these extreme weather events can incur huge costs um, to damaged to damage infrastructure. Fiona, I just saw recently, um, they're estimating in the high hundreds of millions for for damage, just an insured damage. So just what you know insurance companies are picking up the tab for, but it's uh, the vast majority is going to be public, publicly funded. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of the scale in terms of the damage that we're seeing. Okay, so I'm sure Kristen was going to ask you this later on, but I really am dying to know, what is the most, like, if you could share one thing from the report with everybody that you don't think is, like, already widely known, that you think is really important for everyone to know, what 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 would that be? I think the most important thing, it maybe sounds simple and obvious, but I don't think it is, and I don't think it's widely understood is that I think there's a perception out there still that Canada is a climate winner and that Canada is sort of poised to benefit from climate change. And um, I would say this report should lay that to rest because it shows that the damage to Canada's economy is wide ranging and relatively extensive. And there's very small minority of sectors that that looks set to benefit, so agriculture and construction, which I'd love to talk about more because I think that's an interesting case in itself. 
but the vast majority of sectors are negatively impacted and people are really picking up the biggest price. So we find that the impacts on household income are the most dramatic. So that climate change is an affordability challenge and that climate change is not a good thing for Canada's economy. That's probably the the number one thing I'd like like people to take away from from this report. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, so thank you for sharing that. What what I was going to ask was um, just still on this theme of of infrastructure and adaptation. Uh, one of the things your report finds is that there's a pretty substantial benefit to investing proactively in adaptation. So could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, that's and and that's maybe if I was to give a second a second takeaway <laughs> um, for the report, I would say that that the future is not inevitable and that adaptation uh, is extremely effective. In the impact groups that we looked at specifically, which is just a subset of of adaptation actions that we could take, we found a payback of between thirteen to fifteen dollars per dollar invested in proactive adaptation. So obviously that's a massive return on investment. Um, You do need to make the investments to reap that benefit, which is something that Canada is not yet doing to the scale that it, that we need to do, um, especially on the proactive side, but yeah, 13 to $15 per dollar invested in proactive adaptation. And that's a combination of avoided costs from direct damage. So like I was talking about before with infrastructure, we avoided, um, need to repair or replace infrastructure prematurely. Uh, But also an even more impactful is the um, avoided sort of knock-on effects through the economy. So uh, avoided um, reductions in labor productivity, um, avoided supply chain disruptions, that kind of thing. Adaptation measures provide significant indirect benefits. Yeah, separately, we also found that... um, So moving from a high to a low emissions scenario, as well as proactive adaptation, can together cut the costs that we're expecting by 75%. So there's, yeah, a real sort of story there of this future isn't inevitable and we need to pair both emissions reductions and adaptation measures to to protect our economy from these costs. Yeah, and another thing that I, I found really interesting from your report is how you looked at the impact on households um, and you found as well pretty substantial impacts for different household types. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's um, I think one of the most significant findings in this report is that households are really, really paying the price and low income households are disproportionately paying the price. So we found um, that all households, um, I believe the number off the top of my head is about $700 um, per capita and household income loss as soon as 2025. So it's in the very short term, we're already seeing major impacts on households. By the end of the century, in a a high emissions scenario, we're looking at uh, low-income households, income losses of about 23%, and median households of 19%. So that's an extremely significant hit to household income. At a time when, you know, people are really struggling already with affordability challenges, right? It's acute for people and climate change we find really makes that worse. I could talk a little bit about kind of the mechanisms for how that happens, if that's yes, please. interesting yeah. for sure. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, so there's a bunch of ways. Uh, it's everything from increased direct costs. So like increased need to repair and replace damaged homes and, and businesses, 
higher insurance premiums as insurance companies recoup, recoup the costs of, of more disasters that they're paying for. Slower economic growth affects households because it shrinks investment opportunities and it shrinks income. There's also a negative jobs impact from climate change. So we see potentially 500,000 jobs lost by mid-century, which is substantial and obviously uh-huh. devastating for the people whose jobs could be lost from, from climate change. Um, and then interestingly, we also see uh, increased taxation um, and a burden of increased taxation because government needs to increase taxes in order to maintain all the services that we rely on and respond to these extreme weather events um, and other costs. Like, you know, like we saw in Fiona recently, we're talking about, you know, billions of dollars a year, sometimes billions of dollars just for a specific event. And either, either government, you know, cuts costs elsewhere and cuts services elsewhere or they have to raise taxes to cover those increased expenditures. So all of that kind of comes together. Oh, there's one other thing that I missed. Um, higher prices of, of goods, which is obviously something we're already seeing now with inflation. But we see um, increased supply chain shocks and other pressures that end up flowing through to the consumer. So people are going to be paying more for everyday items. So you get kind of, you know, this trifecta of higher prices, lower incomes and other increased expenditures, um, taxes and, and insurance that really impact households. So not a, not a great story for, for affordability. One of the other sort of related factors that you kind of touched on a bit was um, how climate change slows growth. And I think the term that um, the report used to describe that is the broken window fallacy. I might be wrong on that. Um, but could you explain how that works? We talk, yeah, so we talk about two concepts. We talk about kind of economic drag, which is this sort of macroeconomic drag on the economy that climate change creates. Um, and we talk about broken windows, which is um, really the effect on households that we see um, from climate change. So, and, and what we see is that um, the broken windows indicators, so like household income, um, for example, are even worse than the economic drag indicators, which really drives home the disproportionate burden on households and that it's people that end up paying these costs. Um, But yeah, at at a macroeconomic level, we find that climate change drags down the economy as a whole, um, results in substantial um, job losses, potentially, if we don't, you know, mitigate against it and reduce some of those costs that, um, that I talked about before. Um, and we find that the one of the interesting findings from from the report is that the the slowing of the economy and, and the cost to the economy are already manifesting in the very short term. So it's not that we're you know sort of fine now and talking about people's grandchildren being affected. Um, we modeled so our first window was out to 2025, so just three years from now, and we found um, a 25 billion dollar hit annually as soon as 2025, rising to potentially $100 billion a year in a high emission scenario by mid-century in terms of lost national income. So that's obviously a a substantial, substantial hit. And, you know, slowing economic growth um, and lower GDP trickles through the economy in a a variety of ways and and has negative impacts um, on people and on various sectors of the economy. And the sectoral point, which maybe you were going to ask ask about too, is interesting. 
So we find that almost every sector of the economy is negatively hit. Like I mentioned before, agriculture does see benefit, and that's the area where we see the clearest benefit. We see increased yields from agriculture, though you know there's a fair bit of uncertainty around, around some of that. The other interesting one, which connects back to broken windows, is construction. Construction kind of on its face maybe is a little bit of a good news story, but when you think about what that actually means, that's a boost to the construction sector because governments and people are paying more to replace and repair infrastructure sooner than they should. And that carries not only direct costs to government spending and to individual spending, but also, you know, there's an opportunity cost because government spending is not infinite and it ends up going towards just fixing what's been broken rather than to spurring more, you know, productivity investments to boost the economy. So even though construction kind of looks on its face like a good news story, I think that that masks sort of broader negative impacts. And the two, construction and agriculture together, are only about 8.5% of the total economy. So really swamped by, by negative impacts in all the other sectors that we see. What about on the sort of other side? What are some of the sectors that are going to be most acutely affected by climate change? So you're testing my my uh, my recall on all of this. <laughs> um, so most other sectors, so everything from manufacturing, transportation, transportation we find and manufacturing, I believe, are the two that are um, some of the worst hit. Some pretty big employers. <laughs> pretty big employers, yeah, and quite sensitive to climate impacts. So um, manufacturing, one of the interesting things that we found is there's real effects on labor productivity um, in large part through kind of heat sensitive manufacturing where the facilities, you know, can't really operate in extreme heat events that we're seeing um, increasing in their frequency and severity. And on the flip side that installing, so some adaptation measures like installing shading technologies for, for manufacturing facilities can really mitigate against that negative impact on labor productivity and, and reduce some of those costs. So just to kind of give one relatively concrete example of where we see the costs and where we can intervene. But yeah, manufacturing, transportation, transportation is um, obviously sensitive to uh, negative impacts on our on our road and rail infrastructure. You know, you need yeah. to use, use them <laughs> to get places. So <laughs> when those are when those are hit or out of commission, like we saw in, in the flooding in BC last year, you you get pretty immediate and direct effects on transportation. The services sector is also negatively hit and sensitive. And the resources sector uh, is also negatively hit, and that includes agriculture. So even though agriculture is a net winner, um, we find that that's outweighed by um, negative impacts to the other aspects of the resources sector. Particularly, we looked at forestry. And we find that timber harvest volumes decrease substantially, um, which drags the entire sector down, despite agriculture being a positive story. Yeah, so pretty wide ranging impacts on the economy. What about um, different regions? Are there any parts of Canada that are going to be more affected than others? The first thing I'd say is all regions are affected. So it's not a story of, you know, some regions being hit hard, but then everybody else kind of faring okay. So we see negative impacts across the country. 
both in the mid and uh, sorry, in the low and the high emissions scenarios, both out to mid century and to the end of century. We find that Northern Canada is hit the hardest. And like I touched on before, that's in large part due to the effects of permafrost thaw in Northern Canada and the kind of devastating effects that that can have on, on the infrastructure that they rely on. And then also Alberta is hit particularly hard. And that is um, largely due to disproportionate uh, occurrence of extreme weather events in Alberta. Obviously, there's been already terrible examples of that over the last number of years. But we see Alberta, Alberta hit particularly hard and northern Canada hit particularly hard amongst the regions of Canada. Yeah, I find that really interesting when like when I was reading the report, that was something that really struck me because I feel like of regions across Canada, Alberta is one of the places where the narrative that will benefit from climate change is the most pervasive. And so to sort of see it written that actually, no, we found Alberta is one of the most vulnerable to climate change and is going to be the worst hit. And I, I mean, it's, you know, it's terrible, right? Like the people who live lived in Fort McMurray or live in Fort McMurray know that firsthand, the impacts of climate change. But obviously, you know, the their economy is highly tied to the oil and gas sector. And I think even though there are a lot of jobs in the clean energy economy that are, you know, going to be in demand and open to workers in that sector, and that sector has ways that it can pivot and, and maintain some competitiveness depending on the focus of their operations. Yeah, there's, I think, a, sort of a sense that that maybe climate change could could benefit us or that, you know, we don't, we shouldn't do as much because of the economy. And I think, yeah, hopefully this, this resonates that really the economy across the country and, and people in Alberta, especially are, are hit hard. And we really do need to, you know, adapt our economy and um, reduce emissions. Yeah. And then sort of building from that, what are some of the, the key actions that you would hope to see based on this report? So we have targeted our recommendations in this report at, at governments. I think to date on adaptation in particular, we didn't talk about this too much, but just to make the point at the end here, there's been sort of a, I don't want to say a downloading to local governments, but a lot of the response to adapt, to climate change on the adaptation side has been led at the local level. There has been federal funding, obviously. There's federal programs that step in, especially um, in response to disasters. But a lot of it has been kind of ad hoc, either at the individual level or at the at the local or regional level. And we, you know, our perspective is, and based on this research and other work that's been done, that's really not adequate to protect us from climate change and to make sure that we're building resilience and protecting people. I mean, people don't have, you know, the the means or necessarily the information to be able to protect themselves. And I don't think that's something that should be up to individuals without government support and direction. And yeah, to date, Canada's really had kind of this fractured and uncoordinated approach to, to adaptation in particular, even more, um, much more than on the emissions reduction side. So yeah, so our recommendations, our policy advice has really, really focused around kind of a more coordinated, more ambitious approach at the federal level. So the, the federal government is releasing the National Adaptation Strategy 
very soon, just before COP is the plan. So within the next week and a half or so. And that's Canada's first adaptation strategy. And peer jurisdictions in Europe and elsewhere are on like, you know, multiple iterations of their plans. They've been doing this for decades already. So we're really behind. So that's a key priority. We need to see some urgency and some ambition around sort of looking at the highest, the biggest risks to Canada, to Canadians and to the economy and prioritizing immediate actions with measurable targets, um, with adequate funding. So we know how we're doing um, in terms of improving resilience and we can measure progress. That's a key recommendation that we've made a few times um, to the federal government. We also, um, in this report, emphasize the need to really build these costs into government forecasting and government decision-making. Because without doing so, you're sort of implicitly assuming that climate change is not going to continue, right? So when governments um, build their fiscal outlooks and report them in their budgets, they're implicitly assuming that climate change is not going to impact our economy. And Australia actually has just... um, just released a budget where it has started to incorporate climate, the cost of climate change to their economy and the fiscal fiscal risks, which is very interesting. So we want to see something similar happen in Canada. And obviously also, you know, continued commitment and um, ratcheting up the commitment and the level of ambition on um, emissions reductions, both at home and supporting global efforts to do so. Okay, so more a more coordinated approach to adaptation uh, incorporating the costs of climate change into, you know, economic forecasting and actually getting those emissions down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> so what about like if a, a listener is has taken in all that you've said and is now sort of thinking about what what they should do to try to encourage these things, what would you suggest for them? I would say, I mean, my my background is in politics and, you know, this work has been so focused on, on what governments can do. I think that, that it's underestimated how much politicians actually do listen to and respond to the concerns of their constituents. So that's sort of where I would go off the bat. I think that there is a lot of value in showing up to local, you know, local governments in particular, people, um, who work in local government are very closely connected to and very responsive to what people in their community need and, and think is important. And they see the impacts firsthand of climate change. So I think, you know, making your voice heard to lo- various levels of government, taking advantage of engagement opportunities um, with local councillors and, and mayors, um, writing to your MLA, requesting meetings with your MLA, checking to see, you know, where they are at the, on this issue and, and emphasizing that it's a priority for you, as well as to your MP. I think that can be particularly impactful. There's also other, you know, community organizations um, that do disaster response and preparedness that I think people, people can get involved in that are often doing really great work as well. Awesome. That's lots of different options for people to get involved. So thank you. <laughs> Like what's on the agenda next for the Canadian Climate Institute? What are you working on now? Lots of different things. In particular, <laughs> we're looking at um, at buildings uh, and at opportunities to, I would say kind of broadly opportunities to pair um, adaptation efforts and emissions reductions together through policy. 
So we're looking at buildings and the future of um, the gas network, as well as looking at interventions like heat pumps, for example, and how they can achieve both um, emissions reductions and adaptation goals. Heat pumps are the poorly named workhorse for a lot of uh, a lot of great outcomes for people where we saw in the heat wave, people who had heat pumps were comfortable and safe, right? And there's a lot of issues around, around um, equity and equitable access to that kind of technology um, and how government can, can intervene there to make sure that, that that is supported, that people have equitable access to technologies like heat pumps. So we're looking at that. Yeah, we're also, you know, always looking, looking to make sure that, that policy interventions are being designed in a way that makes people's lives better and that supports other goals like equity, diversity, and affordability for people who are really struggling with cost of living. Um, so that's definitely a priority of ours going forward as well. Oh, excellent. I look forward to reading that, especially the building stuff. That's so interesting. <laughs> Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot, and we um we did a, a lot. Our mitigation team did a lot of work. They released a report called the Big Switch, which looked at electrification in in Canada. So there's some work following on from that. Buildings as part of it, and, and other pieces on how we can really get electrification across the country going in a way that is, uh, yeah, it's ambitious and also supports people, ratepayers. Um, to, to help us hit our targets. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah, for breaking down this years in the making report that hopefully will result in our government making better policy choices and or just not ignoring the fact that climate change is something that we need to be building into every single thing that we make decisions on. Yeah, no, I mean, I think even just personally, like seeing some of the debate play out around like, different policies, you know, like from the carbon tax to um, the cost of adaptation, it's all playing out kind of against the backdrop that isn't the full picture, right? Because we're not baking in the fact that climate change is going to cost our economy as the baseline, right? We're still operating as if the baseline is a world that doesn't exist anymore, which leads to, I think, really skewed debates about about where the costs lie and what affordability means and what we need to do, you know? So I really hope, yeah, that shifts a little. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm really impressed with how comprehensive this report has been, but I'm also a little shocked that something like this didn't exist for Canada before, you know, like I I get it. It's huge. It's a lot of work to make, but how, how have we not had this since the nineties, you know, like this feels like it's 30 years late. Yeah. And I mean, we've had some stuff, done and there but uh, yeah there's been nothing like this comprehensive and the fact that we haven't had anything this comprehensive I think has partly led to that misconception that Canada is a climate winner because there have been some very high level global like reports that look at kind of emissions scenarios um, and look at Canada's economy but they don't look at the specifics of Canada's economy so you end up getting like a couple of really high level findings that, oh, Canada will be okay because it's warmer, essentially. And it is really misleading because it, yeah, it doesn't take into account the specifics. And when you do, you get not a pretty picture. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this report and for helping to write this report. 
Can people find you anywhere? Can people follow you on Twitter or follow your work? Or would you just recommend people follow the Climate Institute? What would you what would you say to our listeners? Yeah, I'm a new I'm a new Twitter person. Sarah underscore K Miller is my Twitter. And yeah, following the work of the Climate Institute. Also highly recommended. Wonderful. Okay, great. Well, thank you for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in for this episode. And we are excited to catch you on the next episode.